trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, the purpose of this program is not to tell you what to think. My job here is to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible and actually to consider the possibility that maybe truth isn't something that's handed to us by someone in authority. In other words, it's something we have to go after ourselves. That being said, this is why it's so important that we don't allow our thinking to become hyper-focused on who or what we're against. I think we should be more certain about who we are individually and what we stand for. So with that in mind, I encourage you to come and find courage and camaraderie among your your fellow wrong thinkers and above all to claim your heritage as a free individual. And then once you've claimed it, to go out there and make the difference that you were born to make. Some great sponsors make this show possible on a daily basis. I just uh, want to give a quick shout out to them. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, also GovernYourIncome.com, and SolarPatriots.com. Well, let's dive right in. I, uh, I took a chance yesterday and watched a little bit of the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Now, I've been very aware of this case ever since uh, then 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse uh, had the misfortune of having to defend himself against uh, three very serious attackers, maybe four very serious attackers, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, last year. He ended up uh, killing two of the individuals and uh, grievously wounding a third. Now, of course, the, the ideological divide... Right, the, the 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 sides couldn't be more clearly divided on this issue. But I witnessed yesterday what uh, I have been told is something you could watch ten years of trials and not see the kind of exchange like you saw yesterday between the judge and the assistant uh, district attorney. It was truly a stunning exchange, and all the more stunning in the fact that it, it illustrates this divide in America with the, with the Kyle Rittenhouse trial being one of the key focal points. And I'm having trouble deciding. Is it Kyle Rittenhouse on trial? Is it really the pursuit of justice that's going on here? Or is the rifle that Kyle used on trial? Is it the fact that he exercised the natural right of self-defense against a lawless mob? Isn't it interesting, too, how many people are suddenly concerned about, well, now, wait a minute, wasn't he a minor crossing state lines? I mean, suddenly they're very technical about, we should should revere every aspect of the law. Yes, except the ones uh, prohibiting, you know, burning and beating and looting and otherwise victimizing people. But yeah, yeah, other than that, uh, sure, let's strain at that gnat while we swallow whole the camel of uh, mostly peaceful protests. Okay, let's, yeah, let's jump right in. I want to play a little excerpt from, for, for you from Tucker Carlson's show last night. And this is, this is gold. But it also illustrates, you know, why this is such a divisive 
subject. And it's very questionable whether what's being pursued here is is really justice or something with a more political goal. Here's Tucker Carlson's take. In the meantime, tonight, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial continued today in Wisconsin in a move that surprised lawyers everywhere. Rittenhouse took the stand in his own defense. That is unusual in criminal cases, and it's especially unusual in murder trials. And the reason is simple. The stakes are too high. One wrong answer in a cross-examination, and you could wind up spending life in prison. But this case was different. By the time he testified today, Kyle Rittenhouse had already won the case. At this point, there was no remaining doubt that Kyle Rittenhouse acted in self-defense during the riots last summer in Kenosha. Every shot Rittenhouse fired was captured on videotape and from multiple angles. Every single witness who testified this week at the trial confirmed exactly what happened. And here are the facts of it. A convicted child rapist called Joseph Rosenbaum was released from a mental hospital and then went directly to join the mob that was burning downtown Kenosha. Once he got to the riot, Rosenbaum saw Kyle Rittenhouse and immediately threatened to kill him. Rosenbaum then chased Rittenhouse and tried to pull the gun from his hands. When he did that, Kyle Rittenhouse shot him. So Joseph Rosenbaum died as he had lived, trying to touch an unwilling minor. Okay, I'm going to stop him there, but... (laughs) Oof! You should see the Twitterverse right now. I mean, you know, Twitter is just absolutely ablaze figuratively, with uh, with people who, on the one hand, are, are very convinced that, hey, what Kyle Rittenhouse did was was uh, regrettable but necessary. He was forced into a situation that he didn't want to be in, which is running for his life from a mob that's shouting, get him, get his ass, get him, you know, and, and very intent on doing harm to him. This came out very clearly, by the way, in, in the trial. But the the crazy thing is there's there's... Another side that totally looks at it as well, you know, Kyle basically got himself a bow and arrow and he crossed state lines to go hunting orcs, and that is just reprehensible. So, I don't know. A lot of people seem to think he is absolutely a murderer beyond question. And by the way, you can thank much of the legacy media for those misconceptions. People who take the time to actually watch the live proceedings of trials or actually sit in the courtroom often are going to come away with a very different view of what happened versus what the media is reporting and and especially what the legacy media is spinning it to be. This is something I witnessed firsthand for myself a little over four years ago, sitting in a courtroom in Las Vegas in federal court watching the Bundy family on trial. How the media reported ended up having to change because they just couldn't keep up with the facts uh, because... Well, the facts that were coming out were showing that it was the government that had more egg on its face. It was the government that was in the wrong, that was the instigator, that was trying to provoke and antagonize some kind of a a deadly response from either the Bundy family or from those who were there trying to protect them. So, you know, I I don't I don't want to make this sound like I'm I'm cheerleading for Kyle Rittenhouse. I don't know if if you haven't seen the video clip of him breaking down on the stand as he's trying to describe what happened at the time he shot uh, Joseph Rosenbaum. It's it's pretty tragic, you know. But you know his opponents are like, oh, those are just crocodile tears, and you know it's, he's just you know he was just looking for an excuse to go out there and shoot people. Well, I'm going to say something pretty unpopular, but it needs to be said. Some people by virtue of their lethally aggressive behavior, deserve to be shot. 
Now, whether that was Kyle Rittenhouse's job or not, I don't think he went to Kenosha, Wisconsin, looking for an excuse. He went there to help people. He went there to help protect property. Why isn't it anybody asking, why would a 17-year-old kid, why would a group of people, just citizens, show up to protect a neighborhood, whether they were asked or not? Come on, you know the answer. And I, it's uncomfortable, but let's, let's go ahead and get this out in the open. The reason he was there in the first place is because those in authority, and I mean the police, I mean the city administration in Kenosha, um, maybe up to the state level, abdicated their responsibility to protect the citizenry. The police were sitting back in armored vehicles just basically watching people go nuts, torch a 100-car car lot, and, and they did nothing to stop them. Now, granted, again, it's just property. Well, they have insurance. You know, it's not human life that was in danger. You know, except when it, when it is in danger. And what the jury in Kenosha is going to be asked to consider if this thing isn't declared a mistrial and dismissed with, or a mistrial with prejudice, actually, if, if the, the case isn't thrown out, is whether Kyle Rittenhouse, in the moment that he fired those shots, legitimately was in fear for his life. That's, a, that's all it comes down to is, you know, that's what they have to answer. And no matter how you slice it, this is not a win. If, if Kyle is acquitted, yes, I think an injustice will have been averted, but it doesn't change the fact this is a young man who gets to carry with him for the rest of his life the knowledge that he ended two other people's lives. This is not a small thing. When we come back on the other side of the break, we're going to talk a little bit about, um, about self-defense. We're going to talk about uh, why it's important for people to stand up and take that responsibility but there's going to be a little bit of a a sobering, you know, foundational thought that underlies that uh, that reality that if you need to protect yourself, nobody is going to do a better job. Nobody is going to be more committed to protecting you than than you are. I mean, there there are plenty of good people out there who wear the badge and uniform and would be happy to come to your rescue and bring friends. But in your moment of need, it's really going to be on your shoulders. And it's a heavy responsibility, and it's something that needs to be taken seriously. We'll talk about that, the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. This is one of those rare days where there is just so much to cover. I'm actually just a little bit concerned that uh, that I will not be able to cover all of it. But here goes. Let's dive right back in. So we've been talking about the uh, the case of Kyle Rittenhouse. He is a hero to some. He is uh, the devil to others. I think the truth is somewhere in between. Frankly, I don't think that this young man went out there with evil intent and with the idea that, yeah, I'm going to get to kill me some humans today. I think the fact that he was armed when he went into a riot zone illustrates that he was serious about protecting himself. I also look at the the way he conducted himself when he was under attack. 
And I don't know who trained this young man, but, you know, as, uh, as a person with a modest amount of defensive firearms training, I have to say he was trained well. His situational awareness was good. He shot those who deserved to be shot because they were posing a deadly threat at that moment. He did not shoot anybody else. I guess I can say it this way. 100% of the people who didn't attack Kyle did not get shot or shot at. He wasn't spraying indiscriminate fire into the crowd. But there was something that, that underlies this, and again, the jury's going to have to sort this out. We'll see. It's, it's become kind of a, you know, a passion play of sorts, you know, that, that really clearly shows you the divide ideologically that, that exists in this country. But the jury are going to be the ones who have to say whether or not he was justified. And it's, it's pretty clear at least from the earlier testimony this week, where one of the individuals he shot, Gage Grosskreutz, uh, who had his bicep taken off his arm by Kyle's rifle, admitted that Kyle only shot him after Gage ran up and pointed a gun in his face. So it was, uh, it was pretty clear self-defense, or at least it seemed to satisfy you know, the, the need for self-defense. There were other charges thrown at him, but let's touch on the idea. Why would someone need to, to assume responsibility for, you know, protecting their community? This is one of the places where I think this Rittenhouse trial is actually a marvelous teaching opportunity about a couple of very important topics. One being the natural right to self-defense. And I'm going to just affirm here, just, just so you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not soft on the idea of self-defense. But the training that I've received over the last 20 years or so has really impressed on me that mindset and understanding of when it is appropriate to bring lethal force into a situation is as important, if not more important, than the actual skills of how to run a particular gun, how to shoot accurately under pressure how to reload, how to clear malfunctions, how to use tactics to, you know, avoid being shot yourself and to protect those things that are dearest to you. I mean, in fact, I've I've mentioned this to to friends and I, I still maintain it. It was really curious that the more training I got, and I'm coming from the position of having attended about a dozen very comprehensive shooting classes, meaning more than two days of shooting classes that, uh, that have trained me in this. Um, the, the more training I get, the less likely I feel that it is that I will ever have to point a gun at another human being. And it's not because it turned me into Rambo. It didn't give me super senses and, you know, the ability to detect, you know, evil intent among my fellow men. I just understand that awareness is a big part of staying out of trouble. And I believe uh, Masad Ayub, who for many years has taught that the best gunfight is the one that you avoid. So if a person is paying attention to what's going on around them, they can pick up on clues that, hey, this person is really keying in on me or this person's movements or these people's movements correspond with my own in a way that's making me think maybe they have something uh, up their sleeve. 
And most criminals are just looking for easy prey. They're looking for somebody that they can quickly victimize and scurry on their way like the cockroaches that they are. When someone shows awareness, that disrupts their ability to be able to attack by surprise. And surprise is usually what's, what's working things to the criminal's advantage. Somebody with their head down, looking at their phone, their mind a million miles away, is very different from a person who is walking down the street, carrying themselves with confidence, and actively looking at what's going on around them. Criminals understand this. Predators understand this. They're looking for something that looks like food. They're not looking for something that's likely to fight back. But you have to consider that even in the best possible situation, that is something where a jury would look at this or a grand jury would look at it and say, no, Bill, we're not going to charge this person with any kind of offense for having shot another person or killed another person in self-defense because it's so clear-cut. Even in the best situation, you are still very likely to experience uh, any of the following, maybe all of them. You will probably lose your job because you're going to be in the paper. Your picture, your name, the publicity, no matter how justified you take another person's life, it is going to have negative implications for your employer. Your, your marriage is likely to end. The stress of going through a trial, which, you know, you're going to need, you're talking probably a six-figure kind of uh, legal bill by the time it's all done. And again, this is when things go right. This is not when there's any questionable idea about were you justified or not. Your kids are going to have to be uprooted. You'll probably have to move them to either a different city or at least a different school because they will be subject to the tormenting of their peers. Hey, is your dad a killer or your mom a killer? There's likely to be PTSD. There's likely to be years of nightmares, depression. And this is when everything goes right. Your reputation is going to be dragged through the dirt. And here's the kicker. It's after going through all that, in other words, probably a few years down the road, that you'll be able to to really evaluate and ask yourself, is my conscience still at peace with the fact that I defended myself with deadly force. And if the answer is yes, then, you know, then there's your answer. And if the answer is no, well, there's another burden you get to carry. And that's if you avoided prison. If you avoided a very costly civil lawsuit. So, I'm not trying to tell you, therefore, be a pacifist and do not defend yourself, but I'm just suggesting that even in the very best of situations, it's not going to be a fun ride. And of course, when you have a hostile media out there actively urging about half the population to, to hate you and to wish for your death openly, yeah, that's, that's a big problem. That's about as ugly as it gets. So when we come back on the other side of the break here, got an article here from Christopher Roach about the need for citizenship and courage. And I'm just going to tell you right up front, he's, he's praising Kyle Rittenhouse for the good things that he did. This does not mean he's ideologically endorsing, you know, everything that Kyle has ever said or done. 
But in the case of defending his community or defending a community that needed defense because the state wasn't doing its part, yeah, Kyle was actually doing a pretty responsible job. Better than many adults were doing at that point. Make of that what you will. By the way, I have links in the show notes. I actually have way more links to articles than I possibly can cover in today's show. So I would encourage you, take a little trip by my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Pay close attention to my sponsors. Give them a little bit of love. If you're very curious, click on the one, governyourincome.com. If you are seriously looking to be independent, not in a position to be told, take the jab or anything else, this is an option that you may not have considered, and it's not for everybody, but it might be the right one for you. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. I hope that uh, I'm not adding fuel to the fire with, with the topics I'm covering so far, but this, uh, this Kyle Rittenhouse trial has been such an interesting thing. And, and to see the vindictiveness with which the uh, prosecution has continued to go after him. I've never seen a judge scream in his courtroom like the judge was screaming at uh, ADA Binger yesterday in, uh, in Wisconsin. It was crazy. I mean, the judge was so mad, his chair was shaking from how forcefully he was shouting at this, uh, this prosecutor. That's something you don't see all the time. And someone would say, well, the judge is uh, being unfair. He's biased. He's just trying to help Kyle get off here. But let's hope that justice prevails. I'm confident it's, it's going to, but probably not in the way that uh, some people, at least half the country, seems to think. I want to share with you an article here from Christopher Roach. This was published on American Greatness or amgreatness.com. Citizenship and Courage. Now, the subtitle here is The World is Better for Young Men Like Kyle Rittenhouse Defending Their Communities. Christopher Roach says, In recent weeks, a series of high-profile criminal cases stemming from private citizens acting to protect their communities have been in the spotlight. A young Kyle Rittenhouse worked with other volunteers to protect Kenosha, Wisconsin from violent Antifa and BLM rioters. He ended up being attacked and defended himself from a violent mob, killing two and wounding one in the process. Now in Georgia, a father and son, frustrated by a series of thefts, tried to stop a suspected burglar, Ahmed Arbery. Arbery ended up charging them and reached for the son's gun, only to be shot dead in the melee. Now, one person's or one man's courage is another man's rash vigilantism. And critics say Rittenhouse and the McMichaels were stupid and full of bloodlust for getting involved. They should have left those matters to the professionals. Now, this cautionary message is widespread. It does not come exclusively from the left. That's true. There are a lot of finger waggers on the right. Well, he never should have been there in the first place. And never should have crossed the state line with guns. And who gives a gun to a kid? Okay. Easy there, Karen. Pull up a chair. We'll we'll explain why. In this case, Christopher Roach talks about the managerial regime citizen. And he says, professional civil service and bureaucratic systems are the foundations of the managerial state. Now, the system justifies itself because of the perceived benefits of specialization. 
professionalization of government tasks, jealous guarding of bureaucratic turf, similar to private sector unions. The extensive state bureaucracy encourages a different relationship between the state and its citizens. Under this system, citizens are more like consumers or spectators whose electoral control consists of symbolic no-confident votes at most, no-confidence votes rather at most. Criticism, initiative, and input into matters of government are usually looked at skeptically, as evidenced by the recent deployment of the FBI against parents who dared speak out against critical race theory. As Terry McAuliffe's infamously summed up the matter, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. So without getting into a pedantic discussion of democracy and republics, it's fair to say that the United States evolved quickly into a democratic republic. The Republican part consisted not merely in the existence of a constitution and the conduct of elections, but also from citizen participation in various government functions, whether it was in the jury system, the militia, the posse comitatus, or acting as part-time citizen legislatures, legislators rather. He says, Alexis de Tocqueville observed that the great genius of Americans came from the people's capacity for organization and problem-solving without the need for official intervention, in contrast to continental Europe. Tocqueville said, in the United States, as soon as several inhabitants have taken an opinion or an idea they wish to promote in society, they seek each other out and unite together once they have made contact. From that moment, they are no longer isolated, but have become a power seen from afar whose activities serve as an example and whose words are heeded. End quote. So to flourish, a Republican system needs more than just voting, but also patriotism, public-spiritedness, and courage. Mere self-interest would never counsel one to resist threats while serving on a jury or rush to the barricades to protect against an invading threat or inconvenience oneself to help the victim of a crime. Instead, self-interest is always individually rational but collectively disastrous to fob off one's duties to others and to hang back. Now, Mr. Roach says, this latter way of thinking is familiar to me from the years I spent in New York and Chicago. Both are large, anonymous urban centers with a great deal of diversity. Both have large police departments and elaborate city services. But the dark side of these cities resides in the cynical and widespread desire to not get involved. From the Kitty Genovese murder to the modern-day no-snitching culture, a culture hostile to the concept of civic duty has led to the coarsening of life, the explosion of crime, the growth of government, and the destruction of the community. And he says this is not surprising. Many of the people in both cities are not recognizably American in any meaningful sense. From whence would they acquire habits in decline among Americans themselves? As the country's become more urbanized, which has been a century-long process, and has deliberately favored immigration from illiberal parts of the world, that's a 50-year process, it has become less respectful of Republican virtues and less capable of self-government. Now, the prosecutions of those few who do take initiative, Rittenhouse, George Zimmerman, Bernie Goetz, reinforces the supine and servile mentality 
that serves only to increase the relative power of the managerial class as distinguished from ordinary citizens. Now, a lot can be said about Kyle Rittenhouse and the other men who went out into the streets of Kenosha last summer. Perhaps these self-defense volunteers were reckless, dangerous, foolhardy, or naive. But even if the volunteers were all those things, they were also noble, brave, and pro-social. Kyle Rittenhouse worked as a lifeguard. He spent the earlier part of the day cleaning up graffiti. In several interviews of him, he appears unbearably earnest and innocent. Even in his use of force, he shot only the few people directly attacking him. He did not panic, and he declined to impose rough justice on the mob. He even tried to turn himself into the police who incompetently sped past him. Now, if he was young and inexperienced, so are a great many young men. Indeed, physical courage is something of a young man's game. But one cannot label the Army veterans and local business owners as immature when they decide to take action because the state had abandoned them and their community. They were doing something brave and they were doing something that an incompetent and indifferent managerial system made necessary. So whether from the left or the right, the constant mantra of caution eventually cede all power and initiative to a hostile state. It's an ethic of weakness and humiliation, the opposite of the spirit of 1776. At every possible opportunity for courageous civic engagement, a letter to the editor, appearing at a protest, making a donation, or simply refusing to utter lies, there's always a choice to be made between cautious cowardice and civic-minded courage. The recent explosion of cancel culture has thrived only, in part, because of the neutered agreeableness and abject fear that's become the national norm. Year after year, teachers, military officers, managers, cops, lawyers, social workers, and everyone embedded in the system console themselves that they'll do the right thing someday when they have the power to do it. Someday when they're in charge, or at least more influential. What do you think of that? But after decades of shrugging compliance, one's beliefs tend to conform more to one's actions as a matter of psychological self-preservation. The notion of conforming one's actions to one's beliefs, indeed even the category of personal beliefs, becomes unfamiliar. Even mild criticism feels dangerous, radical, and unseemly. In spite of the self-consolation stories people tell to themselves, few people find greater moral courage on the eve of receiving a pension than they do as a young person full of idealism and energy. So to be clear, one should be prudent and strategic, but civilization and self-government cannot survive solely by rational self-calculation. Purely self-interested rationality always says it's good for someone to do something but not you. As we used to learn as kids, if everyone everyone behaved that way, nothing would get done. So Christopher Roach says, the bottom line is, someone has to stand up and do something. And when that someone appears, we should be forgiving and even admiring of his courage in a world where so few people stick their necks out. And this world is better for young men like Kyle Rittenhouse defending their communities. That's a pretty bold opinion, but I, I happen to agree with it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. This is one of my great sponsors, and I've got a link on my show notes page at thebrianhydeshow.com that'll take you right to them. I talk a lot about food storage. I think it's a great idea. Not because the apocalypse is upon us, but just because you never know. You never know when some unexpected thing is going to happen. It could be job loss. It could be an illness. It could be any number of things. Natural disasters, man-made disasters, political unrest, disease. Okay, you get the picture. But having something set aside that strengthens your position, that gives you the ability to stand on your own feet to take care of you and yours, and maybe even a little extra to take care of your neighbors or extended family. People who do this sleep better at night. And if you've been looking around you and going, man, things seem kind of unstable right now. Well, it's because they are. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we don't have the power to control, but the one thing we do have power to control is how well we are positioned to weather the storm. And I mention this because right now, lifesavingfood.com is offering my listeners a 25% discount if you use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. Click on the link in my show notes. You'll see what I'm talking about. Yeah, Food's expensive, whether it's food storage or whether it's, you know, buying it at the store. But the bottom line is, having it is essential. And the time to do the shopping is now while it's available. And not when there's panic and everybody's trying to get whatever they can, you know, at the last moment. All right, moving on. You know, if you're serious about understanding how the world works... You've got to pay attention to economists. In fact, you've got to become kind of an economist yourself. I strongly recommend Henry Hazlitt's book, Economics in One Lesson, as a great way to just understand what free market economics really is all about. And it's not just about, well, it's the maximum amount of freedom and government off your back and, you know, a middle finger in the air anytime a regulator shows up. It's the study of why people make the choices they do, how people interact, how they engage with one another. But we're talking voluntary choices. And the smartest choices are made by people who are considering not just the immediate desired effect of a particular action or policy, but who are also considering what are the likely unintended consequences. In other words, they're asking, what could go wrong in doing this? And they use that to to be a little bit of a cautionary pressure to not just jump into something and then, oh, wow, we didn't see that coming. So with that said, I would encourage you to get acquainted with economists. Pay attention to what economists are saying. And this doesn't mean that only the economists know what's going on, but I'm telling you they have a better basis of understanding why the world works the way that it does For instance, if Raymond J. March hadn't written an article about how the FDA is now coming after smart socks, which monitor a baby's pulse and oxygen levels while it sleeps, how would we have known about its latest crusade? This is from the American Institute for Economic Research, which is one of my treasured sources in my quest for material each day on this show. I'd never heard of smart socks before, but uh, listen to this. 
Raymond March says, when the U.S. struggled to provide enough COVID tests to track outbreaks in early 2020, the Food and Drug Administration underwent unprecedented deregulatory efforts to combat the pandemic. Nearly two years later, we can safely say that less oversight was an overwhelming success. Under the FDA's emergency use authorization statement, private laboratories were permitted to develop and administer COVID-19 tests without the agency's permission. Testing availability rapidly increased, and only two of 140 tests were recalled as of August 2020. A similar approach brought brought patients' blood transfusion treatment and access to the experimental drug remdesivir. Remdesivir became the only drug to be fully approved by the FDA without undergoing the formal drug approval process since the 1970s. And the agency also allowed vaccine developers to stagger their approval phases to quickly bring COVID-19 vaccines to market. But the FDA's recent crackdown on a long-standing and reputable product is a sudden and concerning return to its pre-COVID ways. So last month, the agency sent a warning letter to Owlet regarding its very popular smart socks, which monitors a baby's pulse and oxygen levels while it sleeps. The letter states that the FDA now considers the product to be a medical device, requiring it to be approved before it can be legally sold on the market. Consequently, Owlet was asked to remove its product from the market or face seizure, injunction, and civil money penalties. But why is the FDA coming after the smart sock now? Owlet's product has been on the market since 2015, releasing three editions and helping to monitor over 600,000 infants while earning the trust of millions of parents. It's also commonly used in the UK, Canada, and New Zealand, where it has never generated safety or efficacy concerns. Perhaps more confusing than the FDA's strange timing is its willingness to remove a product that literally saves lives. Oak Bend Medical Center estimates that between 10 and 15% of newborns receive treatment in a neonatal intensive care unit for a variety of post-birth concerns. Now, many of these infants require further monitoring of vital organ functions for long periods after they're released. Owlet's product helps to provide this critical role, and many grateful parents can attest to this. Thankfully, declining over the past decade, nearly 2,300 Thankfully, declining over the, next, the last decade, t- nearly 2,300 infants still perish annually from sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS. And although the causes of SIDS are frustratingly difficult to determine, careful attention to vital organ function can save lives. So is safety worth the risk, or more safety worth the risk of removing products from the market? See, the smart sock isn't perfect. A study found in the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, found that uh, the sock was 90% accurate in detecting low oxygen levels and a low pulse. So that's not ideal. As study leader and physician Chris Bonafide noted, if something's going wrong with a sick infant, you'd want to know that 100% of the time. But the choice parents face is not picking between perfect or imperfect monitoring devices. And in this case, we're being reminded the FDA has never approved a completely effective product because no such product exists. Instead, as economist Robert Higgs has previously explained, the FDA's only authority is to remove or prevent products from reaching patients and parents. 
So in many cases, this leaves patients with few or no options to treat or help monitor serious medical conditions. As Raymond March points out, the FDA historically prevented antidepressants, insulin, and beta blockers from reaching U.S. patients decades after they were treating patients in Europe. Today, patients who hope to receive genomic, meaning genetic-based and tailored medication, often can't receive treatment because the FDA's approval process is ill-suited to test and approve these medications. Now the smart sock and those who depend on it are in a similar situation. After the smart sock is removed from the market in the coming months, it will be placed under review for several years until it's approved. Currently, there are no FDA-approved devices that track both pulse level and oxygen intake for infants. There is only one FDA-approved oxygen intake monitoring device for infants. The cost of the agency's decision is hundreds of thousands of infants going without a highly reliable monitoring device and countless sleepless nights for parents fearing for their child's health or life. So when it comes to Owlet's smart sock, the FDA seems to have forgotten its recent successes in exercising less oversight and reducing regulatory stringency. Considering the FDA regulates nearly 40% of all consumer products, its recent actions are a strong cause for concern. And Raymond March says, as a health economist, I'll be monitoring the situation closely. That's a nice touch. So I've got a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. I hope you'll take a look. I hope you'll, I hope you'll do some delving into these topics on your own. You probably already are, but in those show notes, you will find well-sourced well and well-researched information that will allow you to proceed forward on your own quest for knowledge. I mean, look, I could sit here and I could spoon-feed you the pablum all pre-chewed and just like a baby bird. Here, let me just regurgitate this into your mind and then you can go out and parrot whatever I'm saying. But that's demeaning to you and it's, it's demeaning to me too. I don't want to treat you like a child because you're not. I do want to give you information that hopefully sheds some light on what's happening in the world around you and above all, as I mentioned earlier, leaves you more certain of who you are and what you stand for than simply who or what you're against. So, knock on wood. That's what I'm trying to accomplish here. Let's hope some good is being done. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Glad you could join us today. This is where wrong thinkers gather to get a little bit better slant on what's happening in the world. Now, I use that word slant deliberately because, uh, let's face it, I have my biases. We all do. I'm not going to try and pretend that, hey, I'm just trying to tell you the facts here, man. And you, you know, you can you can trust whatever I say. In fact, you should you should not question whatever I say because I am just that pure and that uh, that uh, sincere in what I'm doing. Now, having said that, I mean, this is kind of tongue in cheek. 
I'm not going to try to dis, to to mislead you or otherwise spin it so it just goes in a favorable direction. I think right now there is a blizzard of disinformation swirling around us, and the people who are caught up in it, I mean, they're pretty easy to see. Actually, I was talking about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial in the other hour of the show, and it was really interesting, and I actually admire the people who admit this. I've seen a number of tweets on, on Twitter where people who have actually started watching the trial have made the comment, hey, I'm a, I'm a well-educated person. I think I'm pretty aware of what's going on, but I had no idea how badly this was being portrayed in the press versus the reality of what's actually taking place there. So that disconnect is kind of real for them. And I think it's actually a good thing. I mean, I, I feel for them because on the one hand, I can say with certainty that they are feeling cognitive dissonance. They're trying to hold two conflicting thoughts at the same time, and it's, it's painful. But kudos to them for having the courage to recognize what I've been told versus what I'm seeing and what I'm processing with my own eyes are very different things. And there is such a thing as a very healthy sense of skepticism to keep our minds supple and receptive to truth without being so open-minded that pretty much anybody can come along and just shovel in what they want. So with that said, let's dive into uh, a couple of things that, uh, that we ought to be talking about. If you haven't noticed the growing supply chain breakdown, just give it a few more weeks. Basically, every person I talk to who is in some kind of service industry or manufacturing industry is telling me, oh yeah, there are certain parts, there are certain components, there are things that uh, we are having a very difficult time getting our hands on. Orders that have to go unfulfilled because replacement parts or sometimes the actual items themselves are just not available. And some of it's because, well, it's made in China and we're, you know, kind of having a little bit of friction here with China. You know, who knows uh, where that's headed. It has something to do with container ships sitting out there off the coasts and, and around the various harbors and ports. So, uh, yeah, maybe maybe you've been insulated from it. Maybe the most you've seen is a few empty spaces on the shelf at the grocery store or your favorite big box store. Well, it's time to get to the root of the problem. And Kent McManigal rightly reminds us that the supply chain problem is a government problem. Now, hear out his explanation. He says, I hate to sound like a parrot repeating the only phrase he knows till everybody's sick of hearing him. Even though it's true. Squawk! Government is the problem. He says, if you've seen any news or visited a store recently, you may have noticed the supply chain seems to be broken. Almost every retailer is having trouble getting products. Many of them are telling consumers or customers to start trying to get what they want early. In fact, they're warning customers that the things they may want simply may not be available in time for the holidays. Now, so far, this supply chain failure isn't as bad as is common in more completely socialist regimes. But he says it's worse than most of us thought it would, could happen, uh, would, thought would happen here in America. And we're accustomed to being able to find what we want when we want it. I think I would actually use the word spoiled, but let's, let's not quibble. Ken McManigal says it will probably get a lot worse before it gets better. Once again, those crazy preppers don't look so crazy. He says, ever since the supply chain failure became noticeable, I've been hearing supposed experts giving their opinions on the reason behind it. And he says, like me, you've probably heard many different reasons, not just one. 
All of them sound completely plausible, even though they're all different. Everyone is looking at the problem from their own angle, seeing a different part of the whole. This inability to find one good reason usually indicates every reason you hear is wrong. But that's not the case this time. Not if you dig below the surface of every individual reason suggested for the failure. Because if you do so, there you'll see that there's one common feature connecting all of them. At its foundation, he says, every reason I've heard comes down to this. The just-in-time supply chain was fragile, and something was going to break it. Well, that something was government interference. And it's been a long time coming, but the COVID overreactions of the recent past, still ongoing in some backwards political offices, are what brought it to a head. Regulations, licensing, legislation, handouts, they all came together to create this mess. It won't be solved by doing more of the same. And so he says getting government out of the way is the only permanent solution. But it's one you'll hear not from the you'll not hear from the mainstream or from the government as if those things are different. <laughs> That's a good point. Yes, government caused this problem too. Government is the problem so often it can't be a coincidence. To pretend otherwise, he says, is to live in denial. So make of that what you will. I think he's right though. And, and, you know, for people who, to whom this sounds just so anarchic, oh, you just want you know, everybody, to, every man for himself, law of the jungle out there. No, I think it's actually something a little more benign. I mean, have some faith in your fellow citizens. I mean, for crying out loud, well, I only have faith in government. Well, you realize, of course, uh, government is made up of your fellow citizens, okay? So just because someone gets elected to an office or appointed or otherwise finds themselves working within the bureaucracy... That doesn't suddenly translate into, oh, yes, and they're granted superpowers and omniscience along with those, those uh, lofty titles. No. They're human beings, too. But you give people the opportunity to voluntarily work out things. In other words, you get government out of the way. And it's astonishing how resourceful, how innovative human beings can be. Over the past few years, probably the last five years, to be more specific, I've become a big fan of something known as permissionless innovation. And it's a phrase that you probably don't encounter often. I mean, I doubt there are many families sitting around the dinner table tonight talking. Uh, So anyway, we were talking about uh, permissionless innovation today down at the the country club. Biff and Tad were all going on about it. No, it's it's, uh, an idea whose time is coming, I hope, But here's the crux of it. The best possible um, default setting, if you will, is to let people bring innovative ideas forward without first having to go to government and obtain permission from those on high, sir, if we may. By your leave, if if we could please create this value for the consumer market. Because bureaucrats being bureaucrats are always going to say, great, hey, we're happy to help you. We just want our cut. If there's some happiness coming into your life, if something good's going to happen, we want our cut. Give me my money. Where's my money, man? At least the, the loan shark doesn't try to pretend like he's doing you a favor. But a government bureaucrat will. So things like Lyft and Uber and Airbnb and so forth... These things came forward 
as a, as a way of innovating how people voluntarily exchange with each other. I don't know about you, but I think it's pretty, uh, it's, it's disruptive innovation in the sense that, yeah, the taxi cab companies, they were not happy about uh, what happened when Uber came into existence. But having taken a few taxi rides in my day versus having taken many Uber and Lyft rides in my day, I know which one I would choose. Not only is it more timely, not only is it more cost effective, it's just a far more pleasant experience. Why do you suppose that is? I'll give you my layman's answer here, and that is because those organizations, sorry, taxi companies, I'm going to kind of pick on you a little bit, and I'm talking primarily big city taxi companies. They operate at the whim of government. They have the medallion. Yes, this shows that we are officially affiliated with permission from His Majesty, or Her Majesty as the case may be, to to do business in this town. And when they have that monopoly, the desire to please the customer somehow goes out the window. I mean, I don't think it's malicious so much as it's just kind of laziness. Well, I don't really need to impress you because really, where else are you going to go? And when uh, an alternative pops up and it's doing a better job at lower cost, suddenly those uh, businesses affiliated, if you will, with government, oh, they get antsy. Hey, this is taking away our profits. They want government to step in and stop those innovators. I say let those innovators come forward without permission. Soon enough, the market will sort out who's providing value and who isn't. Trust the market. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Once again, a quick shout out here for lifesavingfood.com. One of my sponsors, food storage supplier, Definitely a great place to go if you're looking for a bit of peace of mind as you contemplate some of the uncertainty that appears on the horizon. And you get a 25% discount by using the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout. Details are there at the link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Well, maybe it's just a sense of weariness at the nonstop wokeness that typifies most higher education campuses, but... I am finding myself seriously wondering, why would any rational person aspire to going to college? And and I'm going to give you an example. This one's going to strike kind of close to home, but apparently uh, Utah's uh, legislature was in a special session yesterday as uh, Dixie State University name change has now been, uh, has now passed the legislature. And it's the Republican-controlled legislature, so it's not like, well, the Democrats stepped in and forced this on everybody. It's a Republican-controlled legislature that is now forcing the change to Utah Tech University. Why are they doing this? Well, okay, it's a, I know it's a contentious bone to pick, but it's because the Dixie name, they say, is often met with confusion and distaste. And yet this university has grown and grown and grown over the last 25 years. I don't know. To me... It seems that uh, it's it, this is just more woke virtue signaling, you know, to that uh, is is here to show. Look, look how in touch we are, everybody. 
Look how much we care. And and if anybody, if it's a tiny minority of people out there that, that feels like this name somehow, you know, is is related to slavery, then we, we it's upon us to, to take it away and to, to make sure that it reflects the values of our community. I'm sorry. It's it's just pathetic pandering. And it doesn't clearly reflect reflect the actual community in which the, the school is is based. It's just this attitude, we know what's best. And by gar, you're going to do what we tell you. Of course, Governor Spencer Cox is expected to sign the bill. It's uh, it's apparently, they're, they're saying that the term got new scrutiny. This is the Las Vegas Sun. says the term Dixie got new scrutiny following national outcry against racial injustice after the death of George Floyd. Bull crap. I'm sorry, guys. That's, that is a load of fertilizer that should be sitting on the field behind my home. This has been an ongoing process of gradual chipping away at the name Dixie and at anything associated with Dixie for years, decades. This is cancel culture worming its way into the minds of various legislators and various public officials. And they're forcing this on the citizenry for their own good. Now, I'm not going to deny, there may be some people who have an adverse uh, reaction to the name Dixie. But is it wrong to suggest that that's the person's problem? Whatever emotional association they have with it, really, that's that's their difficulty to work out. I'm not sure why it becomes, you know, the the need for uh, people in power to step in and, well, we've got to do this and it's just going to be better for everybody. Truth be told, and I've heard this from a number of people who are on the inside of the administration of this particular school, that it's uh, it's the president, it's the it's Biff who's who's driving this this. And I don't know what what is it? Is it a need for accolades and acceptance among you know his fellow academians? I don't know. What I do know is it's unnecessary and it's creating division where there really wasn't division before. It's a classic example of a solution in search of a problem. And it's creating more problems as it's being implemented by, you know, various government officials who are oh so woke and oh so proud of, yes, we're doing this and this is the right thing for the future. I still have to ask the question, where does it stop? And in fact, there are some deeper questions that have to be answered. Maybe it's time to call out higher education for its bad behavior. I have to seriously wonder... Why would any rational person aspire to going to college? I want to share with you an article from James Bovard. And, and before I share this with you, I want to point out, James Bovard has become one of the most trusted voices that I turn to when I want an unflinching, just straightforward, here is how the cow chewed the cabbage account of what's going on. And it's not because I believe that he is all-powerful and omniscient. I just think the guy has, a, he has a, the benefit of experience in many areas. He has done his homework. And I sense no desire to control my life or control my thinking in, in the way that he reports. Now, maybe I'm just being naive. But when James Bovard says, is college worthwhile? Here's a two-time drop, dropout's take. I'd kind of like to hear what he has to say. So Bovard says, 
President Biden is tub-thumping for Congress to create new federal handouts to make college free for the majority of students. But as Ryan McMacken and other commentators on Mises.org have pointed out, college is vastly overpriced and overrated these days. Now, James Bovard says, My own views on college stem from my experience as a two-time dropout. I was frightfully bored in high school and had mediocre grades. Almost immediately after my compulsive schooling ended, and my long-lost, my long-lost love of reading revived. He says, a month before I began attending Virginia Tech, a kindly neighbor gave me the University of Chicago's great books list, which became my roadmap to the best writings of Western civilization. Okay, now I'm thinking I understand a little bit better why I like James Bovard. It's because he's applied the principles of self-education to becoming a better thinker. Anyway, back to his article. He says, reading authors such as Montaigne, Voltaire, Nietzsche, Emerson, and John Stuart Mill awoke portions of my mind that I never knew existed. I was unaware that I was loitering in mental neutral until those classics jolted my mind into a higher gear. Now, he says, early in my first quarter at college, I aspired to getting all A's. But after a few hooey-laden tests... I recognized that professors were demanding something different than what I was seeking. Many of the textbooks felt like heavy blankets smothering my mind. I was confounded to see most fellow students never venture beyond the books the professors assigned them. The act is as if a secret zoning mandate permitted using only government-approved building materials for their own minds. So Bovard says, I spent far more time reading old books unrelated to my courses that quarter than I did on class assignments. And he says, the more active my mind became, the less I could endure tenured droning. I believed that I was more likely to develop my potential on my own than by hunkering down in a classroom. And after sloughing most of my teenage years, I felt like I was far behind mentally compared to where I should have been. Now he says, as in high school, my grades that quarter were mediocre, B's and C's. When I dropped out after that first quarter, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. A few months later, I decided to become a writer. Now he says, my ego was more robust than the articles I submitted, and my bedroom wall was soon papered with reject slips. Just because I could read a great book didn't mean I could write a coherent paragraph. So he says, I belatedly realized that if I wanted to be a writer... I needed to learn how to write. I needed expert assistance in my fight against my literary chaos. Now, what he did next was he side-railed his swagger and returned to Virginia Tech. I'm going to have to pump the brakes here because we're up against the break, but he dropped out again. I'll tell you that much. You'll want to hear the reason why, though, and that's coming up just the other side of these messages. Our program is brought to you in part by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. You can call her at 435-703-4522 or stop by 619 South Bluff. Get the loan you need at the best rates possible with the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Got this great article here from James Bovard. This was published on LewRockwell.com earlier today. Is college worthwhile? And this is being answered by a two-time college dropout. So where we left off, uh, James Bovard had dropped out of Virginia Tech, wanted to become a writer, but realized, hey, if I'm going to be a writer, I really need to learn how to write. So he says, I needed expert assistance in my fight against my own literary chaos. And he says, I side-railed my swagger and returned to Virginia Tech for the second summer session of 1975. I signed up for three writing classes and banged out six or more papers a week. For a composition class, he says, I chose to do a series of essays on philosophical topics that made the professor want to drown me. I haunted his office hours. What am I doing wrong here? And how can I make this clearer were my constant refrains? On my final paper, he wrote, It's been a long summer, Jim. <laughs> For the fall quarter that year, I took an independent study on essay writing with the oldest professor in the English department, Willis Owen. And he says, I quickly learned that there were no excuses for turning in any paper, not clean as a hound's tooth, and my prose became less tangled thanks to his critiques. He was the only English professor at Virginia Tech who thought I had any potential talent as a writer. By March 1976, I'd taken all the nonfiction writing classes Virginia Tech offered, except for the journalism classes, which I dodged like a vampire flees sunrise. I had no desire to crank out stories about fire departments rescuing cats in trees. Most of the journalism I had seen resembled dump truck deliveries of pointless facts upon readers' heads. And I'd also taken some, a few good courses in history, philosophy, and economics. He says, The criticism from some professors, including some who thought I had no ability, was invaluable. Happily, I never learned to write to please college professors, many of whom were appalled by my awkward lunging toward an epigrammatic writing style. I exited college in part because I was intensely aware of the opportunity costs of staying. I figured my talents would ripen faster in the literary marketplace than in the classroom. I knew that the burden of paying off a college debt would deplete the time and energy necessary to maximize my intellectual development. One of my lodestars was the Roman maxim, debts make free men slaves. So Jim Bovard says, I strove for a pay-as-you-go lifestyle, which wasn't difficult in an era where many people my age lived leanly. I recognized that cash flow was perhaps the most important verb for a struggling writer or anyone trying to develop their potential outside the mainstream. When my articles were rejected, I worked as a Santa Claus Kelly Girl Temporary Typist, Giant Costumed Rabbit, and Census Taker. Plus, he says, I did path-breaking work at the Harvard Business School, shoveling their sidewalks after a blizzard. Ha! <laughs> now, he says, most of my acquaintances were convinced I was wasting my time, as almost all my first submissions struck out. However, in mid-1977, Paul Perot at the Foundation for Economic Education bought a piece I wrote on liberty versus equality for the Freeman, and that kept me plugging away. The following year, the Boston Globe published my op-ed calling for abolishing the postal monopoly. In July 1979, New York Times op-ed editor Charlotte Curtis accepted a satirical piece I wrote on the failure of the all-volunteer Congress, followed up by another New York Times piece in early, in early 1980. He says, after I moved to Washington in mid-1980, I was looking for work and applied to the Heritage Foundation an up-and-coming conservative think tank. 
I was interviewed by a trim, mid-30ish guy who was immaculately coiffed and, despite the brutally hot Washington summer day, wearing a formal vest from a three-piece suit. He sat in a swivel chair and, after the standard pleasantries, picked up the resume and clip of articles I had sent in. Hmm, so you've been published, he said, almost absent-mindedly, as if talking to himself. The dude sounded like he'd carefully studied my application before the interview. New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Boston Globe, nice. When his skimming reached the bottom of the page, his face brightened with a triumphal gloat. Oh, he happily announced. A pregnant pause, followed by judicious raising of eyebrows to signify astonishment, if not shock and horror. I see that you didn't finish college. Yep, I replied. He tilted back his chair, crossed his arms, and with a condescending smirk solemnly announced, Mr. Bovard, you've got to pay your dues. Now, James Bovard says, I struggled mightily to repress a Cheshire cat grin. Go back to college, finish your degree, then contact, contact us after you graduate, he announced as if he were bestowing the most valuable advice I would ever receive. I burst out laughing but preserved a modicum of decorum by not falling out of my chair. The interview, in quotation marks, ended moments later. If employers were fixated on degrees and oblivious to other achievements, I was as happy to axe them from my list as they were to disqualify me. Now he says, happily, writing does not require a government license or formal certification. And there were plenty of other places to try my luck. Liberal editors were less fixated on credentials. The following spring, I sold a piece bashing teachers' unions to the Washington Monthly, probably the best investigative journalism magazine in the nation at that time. I followed that up with other op-eds and later began writing regularly for the Wall Street Journal, Reader's Digest, and many other publications. After 1983, he says, I no longer missed meals or had to hit pawn, hit pawn shops to pay rent. Books later helped secure a positive cash flow. Now listen to this next part. James Bovard says, A careful selection of college classes was invaluable to my eventual success. I appreciated, that, I appreciated that Virginia Tech let me take a Chinese menu approach to classes without obliging me to slog through the usual freshman courses. It's a different world now than when I chose to gamble on my writing as a college dropout. Some top media outlets are far less open now to unknown writers than in earlier decades. But there are plenty of good online venues where aspiring writers can establish a beachhead. On the other hand, if someone intends to become an engineer, architect, or scientist, getting a college degree is probably an unavoidable career step. He says colleges have become far more expensive since the 1970s, at the same time that their intellectual standards have fallen. If Biden is able to cajole Congress into passing legislation to make college free for most students, the resulting surge in poorly prepared students will further depress standards. Colleges could soon resemble the Arkansas farmer who ran his own church and his Huckleberry Finn said, never charge nothing for his preaching and it was worth it too. But regardless of whether tuition is abolished, individuals must recognize their opportunity costs for devoting years to college, especially when individuals could have learned far more and developed valuable skills away from the classroom. He says it's far cheaper to access cultural riches now than it was when I dropped out. As Paul Graham recently quipped, it's strange that student debt is higher than ever at the same time that educating oneself is easier than ever. 
most of the books on that University of Chicago list are now available online for free. Many of the books on that list are not worth plowing. Life is too short to torment yourself with James Joyce's Ulysses. But that list sent me to authors who captivated my mind while reading their books. That helped me acquire the habit of sustained concentration that is vital for writing. Now, he says another big change in the 1970s is that many colleges and students have become far more intolerant. It's vital to have a strong intellectual and moral compass developed outside the college classroom to resist the latest wokeism stampede. It is possible to learn some good things in classrooms regardless of the nearby inanity, but if students are more concerned with getting approval from the herd than with self-development, they may be beyond redemption. As the heroic Hungarian psychiatrist Thomas Saz wrote, clear thinking requires courage rather than intelligence. Ooh, I like that. Bovard says individuals with an independent mind and free spirit can treat their college years as a flag of convenience. They should recognize ahead of time that professors are overwhelmingly left-leaning or hardcore leftists. But in the same way that I survived dealing with plenty of editors with boneheaded political and economic notions, sorry, no links on that one, students can survive brief encounters with professors who seek mindless submission rather than permitting healthy wrangling in their classrooms. He says the key is for individuals to continue developing their own minds regardless of whether they are college students or carving their own path. Pursuing one's dreams without a college degree requires more self-discipline than paying one's dues and serving four years on a campus. One of Nietzsche's best lines offers both an inspiration and a warning. He who cannot obey himself will be commanded. Bovard says, I'm glad I didn't loiter at Virginia Tech or anywhere else to finish a bachelor's degree. Aside from that heritage dude, practically the only person who ever caterwauled about my missing college degree was my ex-wife. But she complained about everything, even the beard. Another benefit of being a college dropout, I've never been dragooned into wearing a three-piece suit. Ha! What a great piece. I'll have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is one of the reasons why I really like James Bovard's writing. Very independent, very clear, and also very informative. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, let's uh, let's dive in here. This is our final segment today. I think one of the toughest things that I'm seeing people go through, and yes, I struggle with this as well, is waking up to the reality that the more we have in common with individuals like George Washington or Benjamin Franklin, the more we are fair game to be demonized. Now, I'm I'm not talking about the color of skin or the fact that we all own slaves. No, those are those (laughs) those aren't even the the factors that really figure. It's it's more the core values that make us such an, uh, an interesting target of opportunity for those doing the demonization. Came across a great article from Steve Saylor, which has an excellent analysis of why core Americans are being painted as the source of all evil 
who must be made to pay. He says, a seldom explained problem slowing the Democrats' march to a permanent one-party state is that while their electoral grand strategy is impressively opportunistic, sleazy, and dangerous to the country, Democrats don't like to think of themselves as the cunning bad guys. Therefore, they blow elections like last week's governor's race in Virginia by taking their own rationalization for their schemes at face value. Ironically, the Democrats' success at generating talking points for the press makes it hard for them to remember that their gambits are ruses rather than ethical imperatives. So they wind up taking their stances too far for their own electoral good. For instance, inviting foreigners in to vote for your party is, when you stop and think about it, a sordid and shameless way to win national elections. Hence, Democrats hardly ever think about it other than to boast of it, except when Tucker Carlson drives them into sputtering rage by mentioning what they're up to. They much prefer to think about how their enemies deserve what's coming to them. So the Democrats wind up committing own goals like Joe Biden uh, committing, condemning rather his Hispanic Border Patrol equestrian agents for trying to maintain order when overwhelmed by 15,000 Haitians crossing the Rio Grande. Of course, that's not the smart way to flip Texas blue and thus assure themselves the White House forever, but he says Democrats tend to be so addicted to the hate that they do stupid things like this. Steve Saylor says because Democrats dominate the respectable media, there's seldom anybody to remind them, at least in between their occasional election setbacks, of the cynical origins of their beliefs. Now, he says, granted, it's pretty shameful that Democrats try to get the rest of us to believe that importing ringers to vote for them is what America's all about, that egging on looters and murderers, as Biden did on the second day of the Kenosha riots, is justice, and that encouraging teenage girls to claim they are boys is healthy and sanity. But that's what they do. Instead, he says, Democrats want to believe that they are the good guys, and that their stances are motivated not by self-interest, but by morally superior ideals. Many of the purported principles that they've recently retconned into existence to justify their expedient tactics, such as that protecting America's borders is racist, that rule of law doesn't apply to blacks if they're not in the mood, that equity requires you to give up your home equity, or that society must encourage sulky teens to have themselves mutilated and neutered in the name of undermining the gender binary, are simply hate-driven lunacy. He says the Democrats' master plan is simple, to be the party of diversity, with diversity defined elastically as being the opposite of a core American. And who is a core American, you ask? Well, the more you have in common demographically with George Washington or Ben Franklin, the more of a core American you are, and thus, the bad guy. Now, the great thing about diversity from the Democrats' point of view is they can manufacture more of it, both through immigration and through subsidizing identity politics. Are they worried that, say, girls might grow up, marry, buy a house, have children, and vote Republican? Well, there's a fix for that. The authorities can push impressionable young women to declare themselves male and put them on the path to chemical and surgical sterilization. Sure, most girls won't go to that self-destructive extreme, but almost all females are sensitive to what the power, the currently powerful advocate. So in a society that exalts transgender misfits as heroines and heroes, the time-tested routes to happiness are unfashionable. 
Now, for the nation, of course, the bad thing about diversity is that it's divisive. Now, on the other hand, it's not 1942, so we don't desperately need unity at the moment. We can likely bump along without much cohesion for some time without asking anything at all, without anything at all that bad happening. Although in the 1850s, American politicians were no doubt asking themselves, what's the worst that could happen? Steve Saylor says the diversity is divisive is also a major internal problem for the Democrats. How can they keep their coalition of the margins from turning into a circular firing squad with, say, the fanatical Muslims and gay Jews at each other's throats? And the obvious answer to the Democrats has been by giving the fringes of American society a common enemy to hate, fear, and dispossess. That would be core Americans. But this reflex is premised on core Americans being too obtuse to notice or too polite to mention all the blood libels being circulated about them. Moreover, he says, Democrats have set off a Darwinian struggle among their coalition of the fringes to be the top dogs of diversity. At the moment, blacks and transgenders have clawed their way to the peak of the ladder, leaving hard feelings in their wake among the losers, such as lesbian feminists who are increasingly out of fashion and perhaps slated for hormonal hormonal extermination for failing to believe that a man in a frock is a woman. Moreover, he says, America now has the most absurd moral elite ever. Blacks are this country's perpetual problem children, and the X-Men are the most aggressively nasty. So the current dispensation is hardly a stable situation. Why are Democrats so enamored with men in dresses that the Biden administration recently proudly announced that Richard Rachel Levine, who played linebacker on his high school football team along with four-star Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is the first female four-star admiral of the U.S. Public Health Service. Well, one reason is because the transgender fad snares young Americans to keep them from ever achieving what most often propels them into voting Republican, marriage. But he says another reason is because Democrats believe they have discovered the one true political ideal, minoritarianism. After dallying with the majoritarianism of Jefferson, Jackson, Wilson, and FDR, the Democrats have come to believe that rather than be concerned with the interests of the majority, Politicians should only look out for minorities. The smaller, the better. Now, a skeptic might suggest that this fundamental change in outlook tended to correlate with the rise of Jewish political donors over the course of the last century. For example, among the 50 largest contributors in the 2018 electoral cycle, Democrats got 76% of their money from Jews. And while Jews are a small minority, they tend to be prosperous, generous, and politically opinionated. So it makes solid sense for politicians to cater to their desires. But he says few Democratic politicians, other than the brave Representative Ilhan Omar, want to admit this reasonable motivation. Steve Saylor says Democrats have come to believe in their own heads that concern for Jewish issues is not is uh, is not that their concern for Jewish issues is not because Jews are rich and influential, which is just a trope. So it can't possibly be true. And that which goes unsaid, he says, eventually goes unthought. Instead, it's because Jews, being a minority, need special care because they're constantly threatened by all the practically Nazi core Americans. Well, that sure does seem to be the narrative that we've been subjected to here lately. And Steve Saylor says a lot of Democrats have come to believe this blood libel. 
as we can see by how they've fallen hard for the argument that because men in dresses are an extremely small minority, American society must therefore be upended at all costs to protect these fragile few. Now, certainly the Democrats picked the most tolerant group to to demonize, and that would be normal Americans. But Steve Saylor says, hey, when your party controls the media, the White House, and Congress, eventually even the nicest people get tired of having themselves, their ancestors, and their children denounced as the source of all evil who must be made to pay. Okay, that's a pretty straightforward assessment. And I'm just going to ask you, please don't use his directness as an excuse to grind your teeth and, you know, start looking for someone to direct your anger at. It should make you angry just from the standpoint that the the truth is being um, played with by those who are seeking power over others. I think the greater lesson here is not, hey, we just need to hate harder than the Democrats. And, you know, I I don't think the the solutions that we're looking for are necessarily going to be found within the political realm. But I share this article with you as a cautionary tale. Don't be the kind of person who lives in that kind of an ideological cage. I think he's right. You know, to be a normal, core American of any color or any persuasion is to invite some pretty serious criticism. So instead of virtue signaling, what if we were to put our effort into actually living as good people, like to the very best of our ability? What kind of impact do you suppose that would have? This is The Brian Hyde Show.